We've been looking over these past weeks uh, as to what happened the night before the crucifixion. And we've been uh, looking from John 13, how Jesus spent time in the upper room with his disciples. And each week we've been looking at a part of that evening. And we early on we saw that Jesus had spoken a word to all his disciples about this particular night. This was a night that was going to be like no other night. There would never be a night like this one. And Jesus knew uh, that that was the case. And he was preparing his disciples. It's very interesting that he warned all his disciples uh, about this night and as to what would happen. I want to read to you just what he said. We're going to, to this today we're going to look at various places in the other Gospels that uh, give us extra information to what John gives us. And in Matthew chapter 26, it says, verse 31, Then Jesus said to them, this is to all of his disciples, All of you will be made to stumble because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered and said to him, Even if all are made to stumble because of you, I will never be made to stumble. And Jesus said to Peter, Assuredly, I say to you that this night, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, Even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And so said all of his disciples. So that's the background to this night. And last week we looked at John 17, which is the, the high priestly prayer where Jesus stands between humanity and his Father. And he, he, he prays this beautiful prayer in John 17. And we looked at that last week. And now we're going to move into John chapter 18. And we're going to see that Jesus now was going to uh, go a little bit further. He's just finished his high priestly prayer. I reckon that he prayed to the Father just as he was crossing in the valley, in the Kidron Valley, just before he crossed over the little stream that's in the Kidron, that was in the Kidron Valley. It says, verse 18, when Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples over the brook Kidron, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. We'll just stop there just for a moment. Can you picture, uh, if, if you have a mental picture of Jerusalem in your head, and for those of us who have already been to Jerusalem, it's such a precious place to us because everywhere speaks of Jesus. But the temple site where the temple was, there was a, a valley, the Kidron Valley, was just opposite the, the temple. And across the other side of the Kidron was the Garden of Gethsemane. And if you can imagine, he's left the upper room and he's walking out towards Gethsemane and he stops to speak to his father. And then he continues and he crosses over this little brook, uh, this little river, the Kidron. And uh, he goes to the, he's going to the Garden of Gethsemane and he's going to sweat 
great drops of blood there because of the anguish and the pain as he speaks with his father. Now John doesn't record this. John has closed the door. He doesn't record anything of the anguish. But we read about it in Matthew's Gospel and in John's Gospel. And it tells us how he, 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 he cried out to his father knowing that he was going to have to go to the cross to pay for your sins and for my sins. He's in anguish because he knows the pain and the cost of being separated from his father because of sin and he knows what he's going into and he's crying out to his father father if it's possible if there's any other way this this is a real cry from the heart this is not something he's just going through this is anguish this is pain he says if there's any other way but nevertheless not my will but yours be done this shows us the heart of God the Son in submission to his Father, knowing there's only one way to be rid of the sin of the world, and that's for Jesus, the one who was sinless, to take that sin upon himself. And he knows the pain of it, and he's in anguish. I think John, I think John felt this was too holy for him. It was too sacred a moment he had an insight to it, but he doesn't tell us about it. And he doesn't record that he and the other disciples kept falling asleep. Jesus was asking them to watch with him for one hour and they kept falling asleep. It reminds me of, of what we're all like, doesn't it? We're so, we're so unable to enter into what Jesus must have entered in. Only he could bear the price of our sin. And so we see that Matthew's Gospel talks about that night and how he went a little further and fell upon his face, crying out to his father. Now it's in this garden, it's in this private place, you can read about it in Matthew 26, verses 36 to 46. Beautiful, poignant words as, the, as, as, as we look and get some insight to the suffering of Christ. But now we're going to just move a little bit further. We're going to read another couple of verses and we're going to see that Judas had intended to betray Jesus. Maybe before we do that in John 18, maybe we should just take a moment and look at Matthew 26 again. Verse 36, Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane and said to the disciples, Sit here while I go and pray over there. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, that's James and John, and he began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. Then he said to them, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch with me. He went a little further and fell on his face and prayed, O oh, my Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Then he came to the disciples and found them sleeping and said to Peter, What? Could you not watch with me one hour? This is the man who said he would die for him. This is the man that boasted that the rest of them might betray him or deny him, but he wouldn't. Jesus said, watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing and the flesh, the flesh is weak. We know, ladies, that our flesh is weak. And so he goes on to say, 
He went away a second time and prayed, saying, O my father, if this cup cannot pass away from me unless I drink it, your will be done. And he came and found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy. And he left them and went away again and prayed the third time. It says in verse 45, Then Jesus came to his disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And it says, While he was still speaking, behold, Judas, one of the twelve, came with a great multitude, with swords and clubs, and came from the chief priests and elders of the people. Now, the betrayer of Jesus had given them a, a, a sign, this is Judas saying, whomever I kiss, he is the one, seize him. And immediately he went to Jesus and said, greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. That's the, that's the account in Matthew's gospel. Let's just read now what John says. John says that Judas, verse two of chapter 18, and Judas who betrayed him also knew the place. He knew where Jesus often went to, this place called Gethsemane. For Jesus often met there with his disciples. Then Judas, having received a detachment of troops and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, came there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Jesus, therefore, knowing all things would come upon him, went forward and said to them, Whom are you seeking? It's interesting, this was a private place that, uh, that Jesus brought his disciples to, a place that Judas knew about, a place that Judas had been there with Jesus before on many occasions. And it's very interesting that John, remember that John wrote this, his letter, his, he wrote this, this gospel later, much later. He wrote it as an older man in the earlier, later on in the first century. And it's very interesting to me that John has diligently recorded this one point. I want to read it to you again. Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that would come upon him, went forward and said to them, whom are you seeking? What really struck me this week was that Jesus knows all things. Jesus Christ knows everything. He knows everything about you and everything about me. He knew everything about that night. He knew what was going to happen. He knew he was going to have to suffer and die on a cross. He knew that he was being betrayed. And, and yet he asked this question and he asked it twice. Whom seek you? He's asking Judas and these men, these guards and servants who are with him, he's asking them, who are you looking for? Who are you seeking? And he asks it two times. It's very interesting to me that Jesus knew all things. He knew, he knows everything, and yet he asks us questions. And you know, this morning I was reading from Psalm 139. O oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know my downsetting and my uprising. You know my thoughts afar off. You know the words in my mouth before I speak them. Who can know you like that? No one knows you like that, but God knows you like that. And yet it's very interesting at the end of Psalm 139, it's very interesting that, that David who wrote this psalm, he, 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 knowing that God knows everything, then David says in Psalm 139, I'm going to read it to you, David says, search me, O Lord. You see, he knows, but he still asks the question 
because he knows that we need to be searched. We need to ask him to search us because you know what? We can't really know what's in our own hearts. The Bible says our hearts are deceitful, even desperately wicked. The old nature, our old nature is so full of of complications and sinfulness and waywardness. In our natural state, we are very confused. We, we, are, we are sinful people who will, who will go towards the, the evil instead of the good. And so in, in Psalm 139, it says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my, my thoughts. Some of the translations say, Know if there's any wicked way in me. A better translation, I think, is know my anxieties. God's interested in your anxieties. And see if there's any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. The psalmist knew that God knew him inside out and yet he's asking God to come and search him. And and as I read this this week and read about these and I could just picture these men coming with lanterns. Can you get the picture? Jesus has been in deep prayer. He he has been in such anguish of, of soul before his father that the blood has actually come out through his sweat pores. Can you imagine what that would look like and what that would feel like? Apparently there is a medical condition through extreme anxiety that this can happen, that through the pores that our sweat comes out of, that actually blood can come out of the sweat pores. And he has been so in such anguish over your sin and mine that this is what he looks like. And he's, he's in this garden and these men are, are around him. And, and, and here's, here's Judas and he knows Judas well. And he's asking, who are you looking for? Who are you searching for? Who do you seek? And he doesn't ask the question once, but he asks it twice. And here's what I felt God said to me this week. I said, I believe God said to me that he loves to give you and me opportunity to answer him about our innermost thoughts and choices. He was giving Judas another chance He was giving the men around Judas to be absolutely clear. Who are you after? Who do you really want to arrest? He was giving them another opportunity. And he does the same with us. Even though he knows the answers in your heart better than you know yourself, Jesus wants to teach you and me the importance of the words that we speak. These men said they had come to seek Jesus. They were intentionally going to betray and to to arrest the Son of God. And Jesus was giving them the last opportunity to be absolutely sure that they wanted to go out against him. Do you know, Jesus knows that there are power in our words and in our choices. I was reminded this week of Proverbs 18, that life and death is in the power of the tongue. Be very, very careful what you speak. Make sure you speak the words that Jesus wants you to speak. Make sure you speak words of truth because life and death in the power of the tongue. And, and the last of that verse in, in Proverbs 18 says, and those who love it will eat its fruit. Joyce Meyer often speaks about this verse. She often says, 
that it reminds us of the truth of the saying. You know that saying that says, you're going to eat your words? That's exactly what this verse means. We need to be careful what we say, and we need to speak out choices that are good choices, choices that are for the Saviour and not to betray him. Jesus was asking them twice the power of words. Oh, that we would realize that when we pray and we speak out words in agreement with God's word, that there is power in our prayers. Oh, that we would realize that over situations, that as we speak out what God says about a situation and not what the enemy says about it, that there is power in our words. Oh, that we could grasp the, the, the fact that we have authority and power when we speak in agreement with the Son of God. What an amazing thing. And not only that, but we see that Jesus, let's read on the story a little bit further. Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that would come upon him, he went forward and said to them, Whom are you seeking? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. And Judas, who betrayed him, also stood with them. Now when he said to them, I am he, listen to this, they drew back and fell to the ground. Do you see the power of God's word? Do you see the power when the I am speaks? Do you see how they fell backwards and they fell to the ground? I can only imagine what that looked like. We need to remember that God's word has awesome power. And Jesus Christ is the I am. He's the one who is called the word of God. That is his name. And when he speaks, there is amazing power in his, in his words. Not only the power of words, but the power of love. Let's just look a little bit further down here in chapter 18 verses verse 8 Jesus answered I have told you that I am he therefore if you seek me let these go their way that the saying might be fulfilled which he spoke of those whom you've given me I have lost none remember we, we, we saw last week from John chapter 17 that God the Father and God the Son had, had, had both spoken about how they had kept the disciples they had kept those who had put their faith in Christ and they had lost none apart from the evil one who deliberately went and gave himself over to Satan, Judas Iscariot. And so here he is, even in the moment of being arrested, even in the midst of all of this confusion and, and of the men coming to, to ascertain who he was and to get ready to arrest him, Jesus' first thought is to take care of the ones that he loved. I want you to know that God loves you. I want you to know that God loved you so much that he sent his only son for you. And in this moment when he's being arrested, he is concerned about his disciples. And he says to, the, he says to these men who are about to arrest him, he's saying, uh, let these go their way. Why? So that the scriptures would be fulfilled, that none of his disciples would be harmed, that none of his disciples would be killed. This is an awesome moment. I, I couldn't get over this the more I thought about it this week. How Judas came with a kiss. That's the earth's symbol for love, isn't it? To kiss someone. 
but it was a kiss of betrayal. And I, I just want to really say today that if we, if we give our affections and our time and our interests and, and who we are and our finances and, and all that we have to give, if we give it to the world, it will prove to be false. It will, it will betray us. Because the enemy is the, is the spirit that's behind the world. The spirit of the age is satanic. And it is only a false love. It is not the true love. True love gives. And Jesus, Jesus came and he said, For God so loved that he gave his only beloved son. I love this in Romans 5 and 8. God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's true love. When somebody will die for you, that is true love. And that's exactly what the God of the universe did. He came in, in human skin and he came to die for you and for me. That is real love. And so we see that uh, here's the scene and they have just come to arrest Jesus. Now I want to read a little bit further here, verses 10 and 11. I want to get through this narrative because we're really going to talk about, about Simon Peter today and we're going to see what was happening in his heart. It says in verse 10, Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it, and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into the sheath. Shall I not drink the cup which my father has given to me? Can you just see Peter? He's been, he's been, he's been speaking like, I was going to say like the big man. You know the way you used to say, oh, somebody's acting like the big man. And he has been, everybody else might let you down. Everybody else might deny you, but I won't deny you. And here he is, and he pulls out this sword to cut off the ear of the man who was going to arrest Jesus. Now, there's no doubt about it. Peter was definitely wanting to protect Jesus. He was trying, he was doing his best in the flesh. He whipped out this sword. But here's maybe the greater question. What was he doing with a sword? Why did he have a sword? Nowhere else ever during Jesus' life and ministry, nowhere do you ever hear of him having a sword. But earlier on that night, he did have a conversation with his disciples. And I think in order for us to maybe try and understand why Peter had this sword with him, maybe we need to look back a little bit earlier that night to Luke chapter 22. I'm going to read it to you. Here's what happened earlier that same evening. Verse 35. Jesus said to them, When I sent you without money or a bag or a knapsack and, and sandals, did you lack anything? That's when he sent them out two by two away back earlier in John 10, remember? So they said, No, nothing. Then he said to them, But now he who has a money bag, let him take it and likewise, likewise a knapsack. And he who has no sword, let him sell his garment and buy one. For I say to you that this which is written must be accomplished in me. And now he quotes, he, he says something that is a direct quote from Isaiah chapter 53. And he says, 
He who was numbered with the transgressors, for the things concerning me have an end. So they said, Lord, look, here are two swords. And Jesus said to them, it's enough. Now that's a bit complicated. To tell you the truth, that has kind of busted my head all week. I have been trying to think, what was that about? What were they talking about? Swords. Why would Jesus even say to have a sword? You know, that's not, that's not in character with anything else that the Lord taught. And I've come to the conclusion that this is what was happening. Earlier that same evening, Jesus knew he was going to the cross. And he knew that Isaiah's prophecy in Isaiah 53, he knew that he was going to fulfill that prophecy. For he was wounded for their transgressions, for he was bruised for their iniquities. He, he knew he was going to be the fulfillment of that Old Testament prophecy written hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years beforehand. And in Isaiah 53 verse 12, it, it refers there to how, I'm just, just looking at here, I'm going to just read it rather than try and quote it and maybe just get it wrong. Isaiah 53 verse 12, it says, uh, well actually I'll go back, back to verse 11. Uh, Jesus, it's referring to Jesus, he shall see the labour of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge my righteous servants shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because... So he was, this Messiah was going to have victory because he poured out his soul unto death. He was numbered with the transgressors. He bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Now what Jesus quoted that evening was, he was numbered with the transgressors. He knew that when they would come to arrest him, that they were going to arrest him as though he was a transgressor. In other words, that he was a criminal, and it would be quite in keeping for a criminal to have a sword. And it's almost like, I want to read you this little quote because um, I found this, and this is really what helped me to understand. It's a quote that uh, I got from, uh, it's actually, Karis Mac... Karis Mac Evism, I think that's how you pronounce it, .com, and it's by a man called Michael Grenholm wrote this, and I, I found it this week. Jesus wanted the sword to be present when he was arrested because the presence of swords would indicate to those arresting him that he was one of those transgressors. That's the only thing that makes any sense to me. Jesus was identifying with the worst of criminals. And, and, and the two swords were enough for the, whole, for the whole thing to be carried out and to fulfill the scriptures that had been written all those hundreds of years before. But here's the thing. Peter had misunderstood and he had acted in his flesh. He had tried to protect Jesus by taking a sword using physical means. How often do you and I get upset how often do we fight the wrong battle? I'm going to read just what I've written because I think it, it says it better than maybe I could try and, and say it right now. How often do we fight the wrong battles? How often do we use aggressive outbursts against people when we're afraid and feeling under threat? How often do we do that? It's almost like with our words we can cut the ear of somebody. We can, we can just let our old nature take over. 
And Peter had acted in his flesh. He had, he had already acted in his flesh and he was already on the downward track which would eventually lead him to complete denial of his relationship with Jesus. This downward trend had all started with Peter being overconfident in his own strength and ability. But Jesus had prayed for him, just as he prays for you and for me. What an amazing truth. Jesus prays for you. To this day, he prays for you. He is our faithful high priest. I would love you, take a bit of time and read through Hebrews. Read the truth that we see in Hebrews about Jesus being the, the perfect high priest. Not one that's contaminated by sin, but one who is a, who's perfect in every way, who became the sacrifice and is also the high priest. The only one who can stand between you and a holy, righteous God. The only one who can present you faultless because he paid the price for your sins and for mine. What an amazing saviour. But listen, he had to go through this night. He had to go through the pain in the garden and he had to go the whole way to the cross. Let's continue to read. Let's continue to read from John 18 verse 12. Then the detachment of troops and the captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him and they led him away to Annas first for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas who was the high priest that year. Now it was Caiaphas who advised the Jews that it was expedient that one man should die for the people. I just want to take this little by little. They bound him and they're taking him to the high priest's home. Now if you were with us this is, not, this is not an advertisement for Israel, by the way. But if you have been to Israel with us, you will know exactly the route that they took him. They took him from the Garden of Gethsemane, and you can see the route up to the, the, the site of where the high priest's house. It's, it's an authentic site. Do you know how we know it's an authentic site for the house of Caiaphas, the high priest? Because archaeologists found the weights and measures in the deep in the ground which proved that this was the place where the high priest lived and you can see the old i dare to say they were the original steps you can't walk on them now they're, they're protected but you can see the path coming through the valley coming over the kidron and coming up to the house the house of the high priest i can see peter i can see peter and john coming behind in a complete daze Peter's just, he's just pulled the sword and the Lord has put it away and told him not to use the sword. And they're coming and they're following and they're, they're following from a bit of a distance and Jesus is being led into the house of the high priest. And as Peter and John come up, the, the soldiers are all around the place and all the servants. And John, he's in the know and, and he, he knows somebody inside so he, he slips in. Peter has to stand outside the door and John slips in and John finds somebody he knows and opens the door to let Peter in also. Let's just read it. Simon Peter followed Jesus and so did another disciple. The other disciple is John. He always speaks of himself in the third, in the third person. Now that disciple was known to the high priest and he went with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood at the door outside. 
Then the other disciple who was known to the high priest went out and spoke to her who kept the door and brought Peter in. Then the servant girl who kept the door said to Peter, You're not also one of this man's disciples, are you? And Peter said, I am not. Now the servant and officers who had made a fire of coals stood there, for it was cold, and they warmed themselves. And Peter stood with them and warmed himself. Annas was the ex-high priest. And because he had been the, the previous high priest, he was given great authority. He was held in great esteem and authority and power. And he was the first one who, who interviewed or questioned Jesus when, he, when they took him over to the house of Caiaphas, the high priest. And then they were going to pass him over to Caiaphas, the high priest. They're going to ask him questions. Meanwhile, Peter's outside and he's just denied the Lord for the first time. It's very interesting about this particular night because when you go to see this house and you go, you go in as a, as a tour party, they take you to a dungeon where you go, can go right down steps They've made it in such a way we can now walk into it. But the only way into that dungeon was through a hole in the roof. And since Jesus was held there for most of the night, uh, it's very probable that he was lowered down through that hole and was kept in that dungeon on his own the night before they took him to Pilate. Psalm 88 is a psalm that was written prophetically about the sufferings of Christ. And every year that we go to this particular place, we go down into this dungeon and we read Psalm 88. Pauline usually reads it for us here. She likes to do that for us. And it, it really breaks our hearts as we read this psalm. I want to read part of, part of it to you. And I want you to think of Jesus being, being a man a real man, but being God in the flesh. It says in Psalm 88, O Lord, God of my salvation, I have cried out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry. Listen, this is Jesus. For my soul is full of troubles, and my life draws near to the grave. I am counted with those who go down to the pit. I am like a man who has no strength, adrift among the dead, like the slain who, die, who lie in the grave, whom you remember no more, and who are cut off from your hand. You have led me, he's crying this out to his father, you have led me in the lowest pit, in darkness, in the depths. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, for you have afflicted me with all your waves. You have put away from me my acquaintance far from me. You have made me an abomination to them. I am shut up and I cannot get out. My eye wastes away because of affliction. When we read this psalm, we get some kind of a taste of the pain that Jesus felt to be cut off now from his disciples. 
and knowing he was going to be cut off from his father and he was going to bear the ugliness and the horribleness of the sin of the world. And Jesus, Jesus is, he is suffering this on his own. Meanwhile, Peter is outside and he's already denied Jesus once. Let's look a little bit further in Matthew, in Matthew 26. Um, maybe it's, sorry, Luke 22, we're going to see where he, he denies, um, he does it for the three times. Yeah, Luke 23. So he's arrested them. Jesus has been arrested. And verse 54 in Luke's gospel, we're looking at the way that, that it's described here. Peter had followed at the distance and he had already denied the Lord. Verse 56. A certain servant girl, seeing him, he sat by the fire, looked intently at him and said, this man was with him. But he denied him, saying, woman, I don't know him. And after a little while, another saw him and said, you are also of, of them. And Peter said, man, I'm not. Then about an hour had passed when another confidently affirmed, saying, surely this fellow also was with him, for he's a Galilean. But Peter said, man, I do not know what you're saying. And immediately while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. Can you imagine what Peter felt like when he remembered when he remembered the rooster crowed. I love God's timing. It's just at that very moment it would seem. Let's just read what John says and let's catch up on the two moments where they collide. Verse 19, the high priest had been asking Jesus all these questions. And down to verse 24, then Anna sent Jesus bound to Caiaphas. And then verse 25 in John 18, Simon Peter still standing warming himself. And then it says down in verse 28, probably in the early hours of the morning, must have been the early hours of the morning because the rooster was about to crow. So Jesus may well have been in that dungeon during those hours, during the night. Verse 28, then they led Jesus from Caiaphas to the Praetorium and it was early morning, but they themselves did not go to the Praetorium. So they're leading Jesus out from the house of Caiaphas, the high priest. And it tells us in Luke 22 that, and here's the moment, don't you just love God's choreography? Peter's just denied him. Man, I don't know him. He's frightened, he's fearful. He doesn't mean it, but he, he's afraid. And he's denied Jesus for three times. And as soon as he denied him, the rooster crowed. And at just that moment, they're leading Jesus out. Can you see it? They're leading him out from the high priest's house. And just as they're leading him across the courtyard, it tells us in Luke 22, and the Lord turned and looked at Peter. I often think what it must be like in a coming day when we meet Jesus and he turns and looks into our eyes. I wonder how faithful we have been. But what did Peter feel like? Here he was and he just had heard the, 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 the rooster crowing and, he, and, and it says that the Lord deliberately turned and looked into his eyes. Then Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had said to him, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. So Peter went out and wept bitterly. 
You know, that has so often touched my heart. It's touching my heart right now. Because, you know, what about our lives? What about how we speak up for Jesus? What about, about the way that we are faithful to him or not? There's going to be a day where he's going to look into our eyes and we're going to remember. We're going to remember and he's going to remember. I wonder, I wonder, are we going to be ashamed before him? Peter must have felt such shame and bitterness. He went out and he wept bitterly. I've written in your notes, have you ever denied your love and knowledge of Jesus by your words or by your lifestyle or by your actions? Imagine living a life of continual denial. Imagine the bitter weeping that a life like that will eventually bring forth. I'm talking, this is really serious stuff because you know what? For those of us who know and love Jesus, Peter was a disciple. He wasn't a non-believer. He was a disciple. But you know, Jesus had prayed for him and he prays for you and he prays for me. And we're going to see over the next couple of weeks that Jesus was going to take Peter through this and he was going to bring him out the other end, a better man, more equipped to do God's work. And that's what he wants to do with all. Don't, please don't get down with all the things that you know you've done wrong. Because you know what? If I started to think about all the things that I have done wrong and all the ways that I have failed God over my lifetime, I wouldn't be able to put my, lift my head up. But you know what? I can tell you that my Saviour, whoops, I can tell you that my Saviour has prayed for me. And not only prayed for me, but he died on the cross to pay for all those failures. But you know, he's a Saviour who'll continue to teach. He's not a God who says, well, just do it whatever way you want. No, he loves you too much. If you love your child, you're going to teach that child how to carry itself and how to behave itself. And God loves you. You're his child. You're his daughter. And he loves you too much. And Jesus came to die for you, that you would be the bride of Christ. And he loves you. And he wants you to know the beauty and the wonder of knowing him and of walking with him. I have written in, your, in, your, in the last page of your notes, if we want to have no regrets, the best kind of life to live is one of love and obedience to Jesus. Remember, Satan has desired to have you. And he had legal rights because of sin. But Jesus Christ has not only prayed for you, but he's died for you so as to legally set you free to be all that God has planned for you to be. And what is that? Well, it's the life of joy and fruitfulness that we've been talking about over recent weeks and that you can read about in John chapter 15, where Jesus said, if you keep my commandments you will abide in, that is to enjoy, abide in, live in my love. And Jesus says, that's the way that he lived before his father. He, he, he loved the father and he abided in the father. And that's exactly what he wants us to do as well. And, and John 15 goes on to say, these things I've spoken to you, that my joy may remain in you and that your joy may be full. We're talking this weather about living a life of joy and a life of joy is a life of fruitfulness. Later on in John 15, we've read it before over recent weeks, Jesus goes on to say, you have not chosen me, but I've chosen you. And I've appointed you, what? That you should go and bear fruit. 
Last week after EGALS, as we, um, as we were uh, leaving here, one of the younger ladies who somewhere around went out of here, we were, we were, we were teasing her this morning, was she, but did she go out dancing? But uh, she went out last week and she went for a walk in the park. And she saw a young, a young guy, a teenage guy, lying on a seat in the park. And she thought, I should go over and speak to him. And she had some, she, was, she had her ammunition with her. She had some gospel tracts in her pocket. And she went over and she started a conversation and gave him one of these little leaflets and started to talk to him about God. He had run away from home and he'd been away for two or three nights. Do you know, she led him to Jesus. And she's in here this morning and she was dancing with glee. Why? Because she's being fruitful. She's fulfilling She's fulfilling the purpose that God has created her to be, to shine and be full of the Holy Spirit and to be able to impact those around her. That's what life is all about, to carry the presence of Almighty God, to carry the Holy Spirit and to have his word in your heart and to carry his word and to know his love and to walk in his power and in his authority. This morning we're going to wind up and I'm going to say to you once again, Jesus loves you. This I know, for the Bible tells me so. This is true. This is proven. Jesus Christ is the living Word of God, the one who came to express to us and show us what the Father looked like. The, came, the one who came in human form to show us what God the Father looked like and to pay the price that we could be brought together and made one. Like what we spoke about last week, that we would know his glory, that we would, that we would know what it is to be one in union with him, to be set apart and sanctified for him. I'm praying that before we finish over these next weeks, that you're going to, you're going to grow a love that's even deeper, even stronger, and a relationship that's even more at one with God, so that his purposes can flow right down from heaven, right in through you and out to reach out to the park and everywhere else you go. May that be the case. Lord, I just thank you for your presence and for your goodness. And I thank you, Father, that your word is so poignant and powerful today, just as it was back then. Lord, we thank you that you went to the, to the cross for us. And we thank you, Lord, just for your love that, that keeps praying for us and interceding for us. Lord, we praise you and thank you in Jesus' name. Next week, we're going to move into chapter 19 and we're going to go right to the cross. The following week, we're going to look at the resurrection. We're going, to, we're going to have a little encounter with Mary in the garden. And the final week, we're going to see the beautiful work that Jesus did with Peter in John chapter 21. And we're going to finish, uh, on that note, we're going to finish the Gospel of John on the 10th of June, of, not June, 10th of John, <laughs> 10th of De December, <laughs> get it right yet. Okay, so we have, we have three, more, three more weeks from today. Come if you can and bring others and pray that God will move among us because we don't want to do this just for the sake of it. We want to do this for purpose, to see more fruit in our lives and bring more glory to God. So bless you. We love you.